Hello and welcome everyone to our fourth and final podcast on the topic of conducting collective redundancies during the pandemic. I'm Jean Lovett, I'm a partner in the Employment and Incentives team. I'm joined today by my colleague Emma Gray, who's a counsellor in our team. Hello Emma. Hi Jean. Previously in this series we have considered the duty to consult collectively and when that is triggered. We've discussed practical issues when conducting collective consultation with a furloughed workforce. And we had one session focusing on selection and fairness. In this final uh, podcast, Emma and I are going to be looking at issuing notice of termination and making termination payments to employees, including employees who are on furlough. Emma, we've previously touched on when notice can be issued to employees once an employer has commenced a consultation uh, process. Remind me, what's the earliest point that notice of termination can be issued? Yes, essentially you have to finish your consultation process before you serve notice. As discussed in previous podcasts, consultation should commence at least 30 days before the proposed date of dismissal where an employer plans to make redundant 20 or more employees within a 90-day period, and at least 45 days when proposing to make redundant 100 or more employees. Although consultation does not necessarily have to last for the entire 30 or 45-day period, the consultation process must have run its full course before notice of termination is issued. If notice is issued prior to the end of the relevant period, notice must not expire before that period has elapsed. Okay, Emma, so one of the points you made there was that consultation doesn't necessarily have to last for the entire period. Um, I think I've come across situations where the employees or the representatives have agreed that the process has been fully completed and there's nothing else to say. In that situation, I think as a consequence, as long as the reps have confirmed their agreement, ideally in writing, we would feel that it's relatively low risk to wrap up the consultation process at that point, wouldn't we? Agreed. I've seen that in practice too. I think that happens fairly regularly. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so the circumstances are going to be slightly different in the current environment, given employees are on, uh, in a lot of cases, furlough and um, on reduced pay. What's the position regarding notice monies for someone in that situation? And can the employer continue to seek grants under the job retention scheme to cover notice pay? Yes. HMRC helped the update of a guidance on the 17th of July to clarify that if a furloughed employee is made redundant, employers can continue to claim for that employee under the CJRS during the statutory or contractual notice period. The guidance adds that the CJRS grants cannot, however, be used to substitute any redundancy payments. Employers will be able to claim back notice pay under the CJRS up to the level of government contribution at the time, so this would currently be 80% up to a cap of £2,500, 70% for September up to a cap of £2,187.50, and 60% for October up to a cap of £1,875. Whilst this is permitted, there may be reputational risks associated with an employer subsidising what are essentially redundancy-related costs from the government. Yeah, understood. I suspect there will be some circumstances where employers want to get people off their payroll as quickly as possible and will look to make a payment in lieu of notice. Do you think the payment in lieu of notice is something that could be claimed under the job retention scheme? The guidance is actually silent on this point, and we think it's very unlikely that the CJRS grant will extend to cover payment in lieu of notice, as it's a discretionary payment and the employee will not be continuing in employment. Employers who do wish to benefit from the fact that employers can continue to claim costs up to the relevant cap and place at the time may therefore prefer to keep furloughed employees on for their notice period, as at least part of their notice pay is likely to be recoverable under the CJRS. 
Thanks. So I suspect that a lot of employers will have tricky questions about notice pay for their furloughed employees. I can see that for those who are furloughed on 100% of their usual salary, the normal rules are going to apply and it should be relatively straightforward. But um, what about those who have reduced rates of pay whilst they're on furlough? For those who are placed on furlough but their employer continues to pay at full pay, the calculation of their notice pay and indeed any redundancy pay will be unaffected. But for those employees receiving a reduced rate of pay while whilst on furlough, the answer is slightly more complex. Were an employee is entitled to more than one week's contractual notice above the statutory minimum, the rate of notice pay will be a question of the contractual terms set out in the employment contract and the furlough agreement. These documents will determine whether they are entitled to receive their normal rate of pay or their furlough rate of pay for the period of notice. Okay, so you were talking there about those with more than one week's contractual notice above the statutory minimum. Yes. Uh, okay, I understand that. Now, in many sectors, the vast majority of employees will be on statutory minimum notice only. Um, what's the answer going to be for those employees? So for those employees, the government has very recently introduced new regulations um, called the Employment Rights Act 1996 Coronavirus Calculation of a Week's Pay Regulations 2020. Now, these regulations are designed to protect any such employees who have agreed to a salary deduction whilst on furlough. So the new regulations are intended to ensure that furloughed employees who have accepted a reduction in pay whilst on furlough still receive notice money based on their pre-furlough rate of pay. Therefore, under the new regulations, for employees with normal working hours, where the calculation date for their statutory notice pay falls on or before 31st of October 2020, which is when the furlough scheme comes to an end, the amount which is payable to them is to be calculated disregarding any reduction in the amount payable as a result of them being furloughed. Okay, so that was talking about employees with normal working hours. So there will be people whose pay yeah. varies with the time or the amount of work they do, or people who don't have normal working hours, uh, where pay is normally averaged. Um, what's the position going to be for them? So the new regulations ensure that where the employee was furloughed for at least one week in the 12-week period, the averaging is based on full rather than reduced pay. Okay, thank you. So in addition to notice pay, or if applicable, pay, payment in lieu of notice, what other payments will an employee be entitled to if they've been made redundant? In England and Wales, redundant employees with at least two years service are entitled to a statutory redundancy payment. This is calculated based on a set formula using the employee's weekly pay, which is currently capped at £538 and that's revised in April each year, age and length of service. The statutory redundancy payment is subject to an overall cap of £16,140 and that's also revised in April each year. The new regulations I mentioned also ensure that employees who have been on furlough and then made redundant will receive statutory redundancy pay subject to the weekly pay cap based on their normal wages pre-furlough rather than furlough wages. The bigger question for lots of employers is likely to be whether to make enhanced redundancy payments in the current climate. As a starting point, it's essential to clarify um, and identify whether there is a contractual right entitling employees to an enhanced payment and this might need a bit of investigating. So if there's a written policy, that should be followed. And if no written policy exists, an employer should reflect on whether past practice has led to any implied contractual entitlement. And on that policy point, I suppose there might be a deeper investigation as, as to whether that policy is contractually binding. So I've certainly seen some policies that state they're not contractually binding, and um, that always leads to further investigation with the lawyers, typically. And just for everyone listening in, uh, in addition to the payments that Emma has run through, of course, there are 
the potential for payments for compensatory awards if the dismissal is unfair, for compensation for discrimination where there's been unlawful discrimination and for compensation for failure to follow the collective consultation rules. So are there any other things that people should consider, Emma, uh, on an individual basis for redundancy payments? Yes, so in addition to notice monies and any statutory or enhanced redundancy pay um, and the points that um, you just made, Jean, um, other sums may also be payable, such as accrued holiday pay or bonus or any earned but unpaid contractual commission payments. And this is obviously just where applicable and dependent on the relevant contractual term. Thanks, Emma. It's probably worth also noting at this point that there are various statutory employment rights which are based on a week's pay, which is a statutory formula, and um, any compensation for those will be based on the pre-furlough rate of pay. Agreed. So in circumstances, Emma, in which collective redundancies are made against this sort of COVID-19 pandemic, should employers be asking their employees to sign settlement agreements? So settlement agreements are obviously a useful way of minimising the risk of employees bringing claims in the future as an employee effectively waives their right to bring certain claims such as unfair dismissal. The agreement effectively draws a line under the relationship. However, there are reasons why employers might want to reflect on whether to require this as a standard practice upon redundancy in the current climate. You would typically expect employees to receive an ex-gratia payment in return for their agreement to waive their rights. But where employers may simply be paying employees their statutory minimum redundancy pay, and other payments to which they're contractually, they're contractually entitled. There's no real incentive for an employee to enter into a settlement agreement and they may potentially be unwilling to sign up as a result. I think there are another couple of points which are pertinent at this point uh, in relation to settlement agreements. First of all, having settlement agreements just introduces an additional layer of cost and time, not least because employees need to take independent advice and normal practice is for the cost of that independent advice to be borne by the employer. And the second point to keep in mind is that if an employee has a claim for failure to follow the collective consultation process, that claim can't be validly waived in a settlement agreement. So the settlement agreement is of limited use to an employer who has just tried to short circuit that collective consultation process. Emma, is there a way you can use the settlement agreement to mitigate that risk of a claim for failure to consult on, on a collective basis? So some employers do use settlement agreements as standard and collective redundancy exercises, um, and they seek to mitigate against the risk of failure to inform a consult claims by making an ex gratia payment and requiring employees to agree to warrant not to bring claims, where if the employee breaches that warranty by pursuing the claim, he or she is then required to pay back the expiration money. Okay, so it's likely that employers are not going to want to rely on settlement agreements in that situation. They'd be better off actually doing consultation, even if the period of consultation isn't particularly long. Agreed. So thanks, Emma, for your help today. And we now reach the conclusion of um, this short podcast series. I thought I would end by highlighting a few key takeaways for employers to consider when they're planning a collective consultation exercise. So across the four podcasts, I think that the key messages to take away are the following. Number one, plan early and probably err on the side of caution when you're determining when to start consultation. Number two, Running a collective consultation exercise is going to need a lot more upfront planning and hands-on management than it might have done in a non-COVID related environment where people are in their workplace as normal. 
Number three, if you're looking at uh, selection criteria for redundancies, there are a lot of bear traps out there. The current circumstances with people on furlough for a variety of reasons, some of which are related to personal circumstances, childcare, disability, etc., mean that this is an area that is fraught with potential claims for employers who get it wrong. And finally, you need to take care when calculating redundancy entitlements, particularly with reference to those who may be or have been on furlough. Thanks again to Emma for joining me today and thank you to all of those who've listened today and to this series. I hope you've found it useful. If you've got any questions about the issues that we've discussed in the series, uh, please do get in touch with me or Emma or one of your usual contacts in the team. Many thanks. Mm -hmm.